Okay, hello everyone and welcome to this IFG Labour Party conference event on how Labour could use obesity, obesity policy to achieve its health mission. This event is kindly supported by the Obesity Health Alliance, the Food Foundation and Sustain, who are together founders of the Recipe for Change campaign. Um, I'm Emma Nice, I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute for Government. So the commitments made in Labour's health missions were strongly welcomed by public health campaigners, particularly on improving children's health, tackling health inequalities and the firm stance they've taken on junk food advertising. But as work that we've recently done at the IFG shows, successive governments have failed to deliver progress on the issue of obesity. And we've seen 30 years of strategies, policies, institutions that haven't changed the direction of travel. That's had severe consequences for the NHS, for productivity and for economic growth. Labour will need to break this cycle to achieve the kind of ambitions they're setting out on health. So today we're here to talk in more detail about what we might see from Labour and what we'd like to see from Labour and uh, how they can go about delivering um, strong policy in this area. I've got a brilliant panel uh, with me today to talk about this. We've got Daniel Zeitner MP, who's the Shadow Minister for Farming, Food and Fisheries. We've got Sophie Metcalf uh, from the IFG, who leads all our work um, on obesity. We've got Ben Reynolds, who's the Deputy Chief Executive at Sustain. Richard Sloggett, who's the Director at Future Health. And Milani Strathen, who is the Group Head of of healthy and sustainable diets at Sainsbury's. So, I think, Daniel, I'm going to come to you first and ask you to, to outline what a Labour government would do differently to improve diet-related health. Very good. Well, thank you very much for organising this morning's meeting. Um, I've been to Labour conferences many, many years. This is my fourth year in the shadow role as food. I, I put food at the head of my list, actually, food, because I think it's the food system as a whole. This is my fourth year doing this. I've never been remotely as busy as this, which I think shows um, real interest from the outside world uh, in Labour and really important that we get an opportunity to talk to lots of, of informed and expert people. And I see many such people around me here. And I think actually there's a real governance question at the heart of this because so much work has been done on these issues i think we know probably most of the answers to how to tackle these questions the question is how why has government failed to do it and how can government do it better in future so i would say the answer is a super powerful food minister who's got the power and the authority to tell um, <laughs> and we're treating and others what to do and that's absolutely my bid okay, um, you it here first. <laughs> but back in the real world um the problem is and the question i I think you asked me in the, in the briefing notes is from DEFRA how do you do this and I think this has been part of the problem um, we've seen obviously with the Conservatives over the last few years backwards and forwards um, I was a big supporter of Henry Dimbleby's work and I think probably I suspect many people in this room are and you know it was no accident he called part two of his report the plan because that was what was actually that's actually what's needed and I'm afraid the government's response I think um, was it sustained described it as a grey paper um, it, it's kind of pretty feeble and we're not seeing much evidence of any of it being worked through. So the question for me is how do we make it work differently in government because it's bedeviled by that cross-departmental set of issues. And um, I, I'm told that at the back end of the last Labour government, Hillary Benn had actually managed to establish some cross-departmental working which might have begun to make some progress on this. 
Um, I don't see much evidence of that being followed through in the current government at all. Um, I don't think if I wandered around the country and asked people if they knew who the food minister was, I'm not even sure that many people in here know who the food minister is. And I think it tells you, it's not a criticism of the individual, it tells you structurally we do not have that cross-government joined up approach to doing it. So I'm very optimistic about the mission-led approach because I think this is Labour's attempt to answer that difficult question of how do you get out of that departmentalised approach to policy making. So as you reference, there is the health mission and within that there are some welcome suggestions I think as to what we might do. Beyond that, we've now got to spend the next year and the transition into government fleshing that out and adding to it. So that is my answer to your question. I think it's a mechanics of government issue. I don't think we don't that the people don't know what the answers are. And there are, let's be honest, there are some difficult political choices here. There are reasons why both parties backed off some of the proposals in the Dimbleby plan because during a cost of living crisis, it's just not politically possible to do some of those things. I hope there's going to come a point where we can. Um, I want to transform the food system in this country. I think Henry was right. It's both, uh, it's a, it's a, in an economically efficient system, but it's got, um, I'm afraid, it's damaging the environment and it's damaging our health. And when you look at the child obesity issues ahead, that is a huge expense. And that's why there is a very strong reason for taking the kind of measures that many of you will be pressing me uh, to commit to this morning, which sadly I won't be able to, even though I think we all know they're the right things to do. Thank you very much, Daniel. Sophie, I'm going to come to you next. As I mentioned at the start, we've had uh, government policy on obesity for 30 years, and yet we've continued to see um, obesity rates rise in the population. What does our research tell us about why that has happened, why that failure has occurred, and what can um, Daniel and the rest of, of Labour learn from, from previous failures? Thank you, Emma, and thank you, Daniel. I really welcome that kind of uh, approach that you're bringing to the issue here. Um, so, yeah, as Emma said, obesity is what we call a, a chronic policy problem. It's just 30 years of strategy. It's been 14 strategies over 600 different policies, 10 targets, all, all of which have been missed, by the way, um, and none of them have been sufficient to kind of uh, to reverse the kind of rising trends that we've been seeing. And our research picked out kind of four key things that I wanted to raise to you today of why that's been the case. Um, the first one is that government policies have overwhelmingly focused on the wrong thing. There's been a real drive for policies that um, promote individual behaviour change, so things like education and information campaigns, um, which are kind of useful in themselves, but they fundamentally sort of misdiagnose the cause of rising obesity in the UK. Um, you know, as Diane alluded to, we've seen um, Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy, which sets this up really clearly, and I like to term it sort of biology plus environment. It's kind of um, this sort of, uh, there's a kind of biological factor there that people are kind of genetically predisposed to living with obesity, uh, or um, they might have conditions that make them predisposed to living with obesity, um, but it's an interaction of that with um, the way our food system has changed um, over the last sort of uh, 40, 50 years, um, where we've seen this massive proliferation of uh, food that is high in fat, salt, and sugar, and food that is ultra-processed. Um, and there's been some really powerful drivers for this. That, uh, um, you know, there are some really strong reasons for this that uh, 
those foods tend to be kind of lowest cost, have the longer shelf life. Um, they're often the most convenient as well. Um, and they've just come to absolutely dominate our food system. And uh, you know, the reason we've seen rising obesity hasn't been, I think people often assume it's, it, it is individual responsibility or individual behavior, but we haven't seen a sudden sort of loss of willpower or change in human nature in the last like 30 years. That fundamentally doesn't explain the sheer scale of the increase that we've seen and the, these more structural factors are far more what is at play. Um, it's generally, it's become harder to uh, harder to eat healthier, uh, harder to buy healthy, affordable food, especially, um, and harder for industry to sell those foods as well. It's kind of a problem for both industry and for the consumer. Um, so that's the kind of primary reason. There are three others I want to pick out. One is that policy has um, been voluntary for businesses to comply with, and our interviewees said they thought that was really important that this was tried first, and you know, industry can know best what, uh, what are the best reforms to do, and there was a real opportunity here for that to present a real impact, but unfortunately those uh, things that have been implemented just haven't had the results that we would like to see, I'm thinking particularly of the public health responsibility deal here. Um, and um, so it's clear that kind of voluntary hasn't been enough to drive the scale of change we need. Um, thirdly, it's not been a priority for number 10, um, apart from briefly under Boris Johnson. Um, it's not been a priority within DHSC, which, you know, as we know, has had, uh, you know, quite rightly has significant issues to face with the NHS, and but is overwhelmingly focused on that and public health has been kind of sidelined within that and you know obesity is one part of that um but it's also not been a priority for the rest of rest of government you know um DEFRA has also had significant uh, you know, things to contend with in recent years with kind of Brexit and COVID and food insecurity and kind of uh, it's not a priority for the Treasury and, and as Daniel said this is a real cross-government issue that we need cross-government collaboration on um, and we haven't seen that kind of real um, push for this to be a priority across government um, and finally it's, it's the tricky politics um, so kind of there's one of the things that's really held policy back in this area um, is not just the misunderstanding of the issue but also so that it's kind of it's it's very hard politically to do uh, some of the interventions that you would need so that are more in that structural framing. Um, so there's been a kind of a real fear of being seen as nanny statist. Um, you know, understandably, people don't like to be told what they can and can't eat, and there's kind of a real fear of government um, appearing to do that. Um, there's uh, been a fear of putting prices up, and there's been a fear of harming industry. Um, and we can get into kind of the. Uh, the truths to various aspects of those. Um, but just to finish on what can a Labour government learn from this, I think the primary lesson for me, like we can discuss about what exactly it looks like, but the primary lesson for me is that we can't continue the same path we've had in the last 30 years, because if you look back at the history of policy, it just has not. It's been tried time and time again. This is actually an era where there has been significant government action, but none of it has been sufficient and we have to adopt a different approach. Thank you, Sophie. Ben, I'd love to hear your reaction to the points that Dan made and what Sophie's just outlined about what, you know, what we can learn from the past. You know, what would you like to see from the Labour government that would really kind of shift the dial? Thank you. Yeah, and no, I'll come into this in a second. I think it might just be worth giving you a bit of context um, first. I mean, I know a lot of you guys in the room will know the kind of the scale of the problem we're facing with uh, 40%, almost 40% of children um, overweight or obese by year six, two thirds of adults. This is costing the NHS about six billion pounds annually, which is set to rise to about 9.7 billion by 2050. These are the government's own statistics. And um, 
and I suppose this is echoes your point, Sophie. We've done some focus groups, which I'm not even sure I'm going to be reading this yet. Um, but the public saying that they believe the main cause of obesity is unhealthy food being cheaper than healthy food. Not a lack of willpower, not a lack of education, not a lack of cooking skills, but a simple fact of cost, which is kind of common sense. But sometimes you need a focus group to tell you that. Um, and put that in the context of the cost of living crisis, this is impeding parents' ability to provide nourishing meals for their children. So how can government uh, work with businesses to help them reformulate, to make that food less unhealthy? How can government provide nutritious food, free nutritious food to the most, to those most uh, low incomes, so things like free school meals, breakfast clubs, healthy starter vouchers, fruit and veg, things like that. That's over the fruit and veg scheme. Um, and I wanted to pick up on a point that Daniel made at the start. I think obesity cannot be treated as something that is just the responsibility of Department of Health. Um, what we need is that cross-government approach, and we need that focus on prevention, picking up on Sophie's point. And I think one of the most significant examples of that that we've seen uh, uh, in the last few years is the soft drinks industry levy. So this took 46% of sugar added soft drinks. Um, and I suppose the most important thing about the soft drinks industry levy is that it, it provided that framework for companies to do the right thing, that level playing field. Um, and and as, as part of that, it raised £300 million a year, which went into things like school breakfast clubs, which has meant that tens of thousands of deprived children have um, have actually managed to get a decent meal, um, or at least some breakfast. Um, but despite that success, the rest of our food environment is still saturated in sugar and salt and fat. And, and one of the things that we're proposing with the Recipe for Change campaign is saying, let's, let's look at fiscal missions, let's look at a, uh, a food industry levy, and there are different options on the table. So there's the dinner we uh, measure, which looked at a, a tax on sugar and salt. Uh, but there's also options to be looking at uh, in terms of building on soft drinks industry levy, looking at a category-based approach to those products, biscuits and cakes, confectionery, etc., that provide, contribute the most sugar into our diet. So this is, you know, this is something that there's a growing coalition which is supporting. So even businesses like Danone are backing this idea. Um, and the impact that these would have is huge. So I was mentioning about three hundred million pounds a year being raised through the soft drinks industry levy. Uh, that would be three billion pounds a year through through the Denmark model. Um, this would be reduced. I think two million cases of disease um, uh, would be prevented over twenty five years. Um, you'd see a reduction in daily intake in terms of salt by about eleven percent, sugar by about thirty percent. This is obviously depending on how you structure it, the exact modelling. Um, and you know, you'll find out all of this with stats on this in the flyer on the back, so please do pick one up. And this is supported by the public. So about 68% of the public support the idea of doing something as long as that money's ring fence towards going towards some of those good schemes. Um, this is something we were talking about before. And uh, I suppose the thing that I'd say to you from a Labour government point of view is um, just look at something like the the legacy of the last um, Labour government on smoking, which is one of their proudest achievements. So despite the political challenges that faced at the time, no one now regrets those measures um, that, like the smoking ban, the things that, that the Labour governments do. So they have this opportunity to leave a similar legacy if they're prepared to take it. Thanks, Ben.
Hello, I'm going to come to you next. A lot of industries already come up, but um, Ben's just been talking about you know, interesting work with Domain. Sophie was talking about you know, whether you've got to the end of the kind of voluntary mechanisms and need to take a step further. I'd be really interested to hear how you think um, government and industry can best work together on obesity policy. Yeah, thanks, Emma. Um, look, I think there's lots of ways in which we could collaborate. I'm going to touch on three that I think are uh, some of the most important. Um, the first is really, and, and Sophie did touch on this, is our ability to test and learn what works in real life. Mm. Um, and as Sainsbury's, we've done a lot of work in this space. Uh, we've actually been working with the University of Leeds and the Institute of Grocery Distribution. And you can see uh, where we share our data to independently analyze um, trials that we may run in store uh, or indeed online and seeing what actually works in practice to nudge customers towards better choices. Um, to cut a long story short, some of the things that have worked best have been incentives. Uh, and I can give you one live example. So. Um, the fruit and veg challenge from Nectar is actually live at the moment. It's the fourth year of running it. And what we do is we use personalization, gamification, and reward points to help incentivize customers for um, adding more fruit and veg to their basket, and that's personalized to them. Um, and the results have shown that we, we see an average of a, a three times increase in the typical fruit and veg that they purchase during the time that they are involved. Uh, and actually some independent analysis has shown that uh, veg consumption stays high for up to six weeks post the intervention, so higher than pre-intervention levels. So really good examples of incentives. Um, the second area where I think we should be working together is um, around the data infrastructure space. So Wes talked about how he sees data as really helping to transform healthcare systems, but actually the same is true in the, in the world of diet. Um, if we had one consistent database that had nutrition information for all the products sold across the food sector, that could be combined with other data, thinking about sustainability now, our, our food superpower over here. Um, you know, business would work more efficiently. We could actually benchmark product very simply instead of having to do it manually. Uh, we could inform reformulation and innovation ideas, and actually we could do it at a pace. Um, we could also put that information into the hands of the NGOs in government to hold us to account and see that performance tracking happening. Um, and then finally, we could also see if that was given to tech innovators, you'd actually see that put into the hands of customers so that they can have real-time feedback on how their diets are performing and tracking, which is very different. It's almost taking our front pack labeling scheme forward in a, in, a, in a progressive way. So data is another example. The final is, is actually regulation. Um, and I'll give you some examples of why. Um, you know, at Sainsbury's, we set a target to drive healthier sales, and we're one of few retailers to do that. Um, in the last year, you know, I stand here to say, we invested 560 million in, in central plate products like produce, dairy, and meat, fish, and poultry. Those have seen the biggest inflationary hits, I have to say. 70% of our, our Aldi Price Match campaign is a healthier or better for you choice. Um, we've innovated, we've seen renovation. We've also been operating in an HFSS placement regulation you know, model. Uh, and we have with, you know, upheld our promise to not do unhealthy multi-buy since 2016. So all of that is going on. And yet we're not really seeing shifts towards healthier sales at the moment. Right, and that's because you know actually when we promote the less healthy choices, we do see better returns, and that drives volume, and that helps with market share. So fundamentally, we are going to need some form of regulation to help level the playing field and make it easier for us to drive those healthier sales um, as the food sector. 
So those are the three areas, data, test and learn, uh, and some regulation. Fantastic. Thanks for learning. Um, Richard, I'd really like uh, your views, first of all, on what Millennium just outlined. You know, do you agree with, uh, with that kind of formulation, the, the, the way government industry should work together? And I also wanted to ask you about the public. Where are the public um, in this? What are their views on how we should go about uh, tackling the kind of obesity crisis? And how should, I suppose, as part of that government, communicate with the public? Emma, thank you. On, this, on the second point, Ben's already mentioned some of the stats. If you look at the Obesity Health Alliance polling, anti-obesity measures are really popular. Um, and for politicians, you'd think when something polls at 80%, they would be jumping to go and do it. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why haven't they been able to follow through on that? And we've talked a lot on this panel already today, which is absolutely right, about the mechanics of government and why they don't work. The failure in obesity policy is something that has been going on for over 30 years and is based on the fact that the way we approach it is completely wrong. And it's completely wrong because we put it in the Department of Health and you will not get obesity policy through the Department of Health. We have 60% of people in this country who are overweight or obese. It costs, as Ben says, the NHS, 6.5 billion pounds a year. That is a direct cost, and that is an old figure. That doesn't include the number of people who have heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes. It costs the economy 58 billion pounds, and the OECD estimate that it's gonna cost 3% of our GDP by 2050. The UK government in 2023 cannot afford this level of obesity in the UK. We cannot afford it. It's too expensive. So this, the question is, how do we start to try and get those rates down? And what can we learn, as Sophie says, from the policies that haven't worked in the, in the most recent past? And what we need is a fundamental, and this is where the health mission is a really interesting concept, which is, let's take it out of the Department of Health. Let's say we want to actually hit an obesity target for once. Let's set an ambition for reducing overweight and obesity rates. And let's use the full levers of government whether it's the food piece, the health piece, the planning piece, to work out what that framework is to actually genuinely try and move the needle on that, on those levels of overweight and obesity. Because unless you, I, I think we learned the wrong lesson from smoking, because smoking always comes up. And what we do is we say, oh, the smoking ban was really good. And it was, it was brilliant. But you know what we did alongside the smoking ban? We increased taxes. We legislated, we regulated, we educated. And as a result, the smoking rates went from 45% in 1974 to about 12% now. And we didn't just do one thing. And I think the problem with obesity policy is we basically put things up as one thing. We're gonna do the siddle. Oh, it's great. But obesity rates are still moving in that direction. Or it's, we're gonna do a watershed ban. You could do a watershed ban. I can probably say, I, I support it but they're still moving up in that, in that direction. Unless you look at this through a range of different levers that you have and you prioritize it in, a, in that way, you will not move the needle on this in a way which is going to get you the result that you fundamentally want and that we, we desperately, desperately, need, desperately need. Now, in terms of industry partnership, I believe that a government's relationship with an industry has to have a degree of tension in it. If there is no tension, it's too comfortable and nothing will change. What you need in a government industry relationship is a degree of 
try and work together where we can, but fundamentally, if we're not making the progress that we will, the role of responsibility of government is to make more assertive interventions. I think the points on voluntary reporting has been proven. If you look at the sugar reduction targets, which were set in 2016, it was 20% reduction in sugar targets for children under 18. The target was missed by miles. It was 3.5%. Sometimes what we have to do is we have to create an industry that says they want a level playing field, great, let's actually move into that space and say, no, we are going to mandate certain targets for certain reduction, for reductions in particular areas, which are damaging our health and damaging our economy. Unless we see obesity as not only a health problem, but an economic problem, we will continue to go down the same route of failed policies that we have. We need number 10, Treasury, Cabinet Office, cross-government working through perhaps this health mission concept to genuinely move in a completely different direction of where we be. If we keep doing what we've been doing, we're going to make no progress at all. Thank you, Richard. Daniel, I want to um, come back to you on this this point around government's relationship with industry and to really get your view on where you think the balance lies between voluntary reporting and, and kind of regulation and mandation. Look, um, I think Henry Dimble will be one, one of the two of the strongest points I took from his report were they, the, the, the the private discussions he'd had with with senior retailers echoing Milani's points that you can't, no one can do it on their own because of the competitive pressures. And I suppose the question then follows from that, which part of the political spectrum is more likely to regulate and intervene? And that's why I think the answer is absolutely obvious. Labour is far more uh, in our DNA to be interventionist. So it doesn't surprise me that the conservatives have struggled with this because they just, in the end, always want to leave things to the market. Um, now, we've got to be careful because we're not trying to run the food system. But I, I think it's an absolute case for the right regulatory frameworks to be put in place. But that is quite a big move. And it goes back to the points you've just been made. I, I mean, I totally agree with you that unless we get this cross-departmental working to work, um, then it's going to be very difficult to do it. And the second point that, that Henry made, I think he actually said possibly was the most important thing of all, was the data, because that offers us real opportunities. Now, the government has sort of started down this path. Um, it seems to be meandering a bit, as far as I can make out. Um, it's not really much in the public domain, but from what I hear from people, it's, it's struggling. Well, I think we can absolutely reinvigorate that. And a change of government is absolutely the moment when you can when you can do some of these things. So um, I can't, uh, sadly, make a, a dramatic eye-catching announcement this morning. But I think you you hear where I'm wanting to go with this. But I think the point about um, leaving the Department of Health. I mean, if you look at the the history of the Food Standards Agency, the the, the taking away or a grab by the Department of Health um, some years ago um, was very telling. And um, we would, I think I'd like to see us um, rethinking quite a lot of this. Because the, the, the prize is big, isn't it? Not only, I, I totally agree with the point about um, the, the public attitude. Most, far too many people in this country are worried about their weight. Most, most of us are. And so actually having help with that challenge absolutely should be politically popular. But I'm afraid we do operate in a world where you all have seen the, um, the tabloid headlines the day after Henry's report was published. And it's still very much, you know, hands off our burgers. And that is a diff difficult context for a political party that's got to win the popular vote 
to operate. So we have to tread carefully on this, but I think I hope you can hear enough um, hints from me as to, to where I'd like to go with that. But also the financial objective, the economic objective. I don't think we can run public services in the future in this country just fixing people's problems. We've got to shift to prevention. That again is hard because you've got to convince the Treasury, but I think it's increasingly obvious you cannot do it without that. So the health mission approach, which ought to allow us to see it in the round, I think offers a very good, the best pathway I can see to actually achieve these objectives. Thanks, Daniel. I just want to take a moment to talk about this point around cross-government working, because this is something that I think has come out really strongly in every contribution. This is, you know, obesity is not an issue that we can deal with in silos. But I think it's fair to say that we hear this quite a lot and yet we know government really struggles to actually do cross-government working well to actually make progress on policies that require departments and within Whitehall to work together and require government to work effectively with those operating outside Whitehall. So I'd love to hear um, the panel's views on how you actually make that a reality. If we know you need that joined up, you need people working hand in hand, how do you go about doing it given how difficult government finds it? I'd love to know the answer too. This is what I keep asking the Institute for Government, how do you do this? <laughs> well, on that note, certainly. <laughs> well, that's a good question. <laughs> so, I think, for me, there's several things you need to make cross-government uh, action on this work. One is that you do need a, it to be um, reducing obesity and kind of tackling directly to health to be a really clear government priority. And, you know, from Daniel, I'm very encouraged by what Daniel has said, that it would be a priority under Labour. Um, and so that is a brilliant start because you're not going to get any cross-government mission working if uh, departments don't have a clear in, clear incentive that it is their mission. And I, so I think I really support this kind of mission-centred focus um, that Labour are bringing. Um, I think that uh, that drive and that priority has to be there for progress to happen. Um, but I think the other thing we need is so one of our recommendations in our report was a kind of joint um, food and health unit, and you kind of need the structures to build those incentives in place. So I think, again, some, I think Labour have raised um, the idea of a mission delivery board. You need the top people in the departments to be talking to each other about how this is going to be delivered, um, and because they all have a stake in the BCC policy, you know, um, DHSC obviously has a stake, DEFRA has a stake in, in terms of food regulation, DCMS is responsible for advertising, and obviously the Treasury are responsible for any levies. Unless you have all those departments properly talking to each other, that isn't going to happen and from our perspective that needs to happen from um, within the cabinet and at that kind of central government level um, I think the other thing that you need to help reinforce this um, you know, that group needs a kind of uh, a robust strategy uh, so a kind of a long-term strategy with what what you're trying to achieve my favorite way of representing this is a kind of i think um, professor harry rutter has this phrase of a kind of um a 20-year vision a five-year strategy a one-year plan i think the government needs to be really clear on what what those three things are and that that needs to be agreed across the departments and that kind of clear focus is what can drive um drive that direction and then finally i would say you also need accountability structures to help with that and you know the one everyone kind of refers to are kind of the OBR and the climate change committee the two most famous examples and you know in case of the climate change committee you have kind of legal accountability there um for the for obesity we recommended a kind of a not a legal option but um still a powerful option which would be an annual report in parliament delivered by the food standards agency as a watchdog and kind of um 
A, kind of bringing a consistent attention on this, um, B, kind of driving some of that data uh, that we talked around about actually having knowledge of where progress is going on this. Part of the reason why um, strategies haven't been successful is there's also been very little, little political cost for not making progress. And if you have these kind of accountability strategies where it's really clear what progress has and hasn't been made, um, that can be a really uh, important and core thing for driving progress. Thanks, Sophie. Richard? Yeah, I would, I would agree with a lot of that. I think if you if you go back to 2006-7, the Labour government at the time commissioned Office for Science to publish a evidence review of obesity policy, because again, we'd missed uh, the 2005 targets by quite a significant amount. And it was called the Foresight Report. And the Foresight Report was fun, is a fantastic report. And if you haven't read it and you're interested in obesity policy, you should go and read it. It's a couple hundred pages. But it is a fantastic example of how you build evidence around a particular policy problem. And there's a really, really fantastic diagram showing the complexity of obesity policy. And that provided a potential baseline from which you could then genuinely drive policy change. And the problem with the foresight report was not the report, it was the political environment in which it landed. Because it landed in 2007, you had a change by minister, and then you had the financial crisis. And then we were into, well, we can't do public health stuff because we've got an economic crisis. It sounds familiar. Yet, doesn't it? Um, and I, I think what we need to, if, if I was going into government on day one, I would ask the chief medical officer to do a rapid review of obesity policy. I'd ask him to publish it as in his independent role. And I would then use that evidence to then convene your cross-government group. Because unless you have a baseline of empirical evidence that is true, departments will turn up to those meetings with their own agendas and potentially skewed. The way you get around that is you have the right evidence to start the conversation and then you also have the right sponsorship. And this has to be sponsored by number 10. There's nobody else who can have that convening power and to basically make those departments work together in a cross-cutting and coordinated way. There are examples in the past of where this has worked. Teenage pregnancy is a good one, where, again, it was a Labour government at the time, convened, got the right people around the table and drove down teenage, teenage pregnancy rates. So this can be done, but you need the right sponsorship and the right evidence in order to actually drive drive the change. If you don't have that, what you'll find is you'll be doing what government is very good at, which is holding lots of meetings without any actions. If I can just add to that, um, I, I totally agree with everything that's being said about cross-government working. Um, it would certainly be helpful for industry if the asks of industry were consistent and you know actually added up to the same product uh, innovation plans. That would be great. Um, but I would also say, to the point that was made earlier, I think um, to say you know it isn't just about government. Um, it's also about the fact that we operate in this bigger ecosystem, which I talked about yesterday. So um, you know, yes, you want government to create the pressure for change, to agree and level the playing field in areas where it doesn't make sense to competitively lead, but you also then want the investors to care about that, and you want investor benchmarks to give visibility to who's leading and who's not, and then that creates that pressure that civil society does a brilliant job of kind of giving visibility to, so that as industry, we act. And I think it is important to have that kind of ongoing ecosystem, it's not just about government setting policy, it's the whole thing working together. Thank you. We've talked a lot about the links between obesity policy and the economy, and, and Ben, I wanted to ask you, is there any risk in the way that we tackle obesity policy that there could be negative economic um, impacts, for instance, that it could make food less affordable at a time that lots of people are already struggling? 
I was thinking my answer to the last question. Um, I'm going to might just answer the last point. Um, I, I think when it comes to cross-government working, it, it, it speaks volumes that Mutani, as the future food minister, is, is joining us on this and actually looking beyond uh, obesity and, and that wider link with food. Um, and, and I think looking at the experience of the last uh, Conservative government, um, uh, where there was real progress made was around things like the child obesity strategy was where there was um, leadership from, from the Prime Minister. And I think that's a point we haven't necessarily made, whether that was Theresa May. And actually one of the things that I think was, was key with the soft drinks industry levy was that George Osborne saw what was happening, saw the way the wind was blowing with David Cameron's support for action on this and wanted to get ahead of the game and say, okay, well, so that he could look at it a bit. And I think, I think there was a real opportunity with the health mission and that framing to be... Uh, to actually be tackling this in cross government way. So I, um, I am um, encouraged that Labour is, is taking that approach. I think it's also worth one of the things we haven't mentioned on that point is um, with the National Food Strategy, the Labour was calling for a food bill, and actually, then this hasn't come up enough, I think, in some of the conversations. And what is the role of legislation like that to actually provide the framework for action so that things can't be swept away uh, with a change of minister or a change of government? Um, can you repeat your question? Yeah. Sure. So I was just we talked a lot about the, the, the kind of relationship between obesity and the economy. And I was wondering if you think there's any risk that the way that we approach obesity policy could have negative impacts, for instance, driving up food prices at a time that we're already in a, a cost of living crisis and people are struggling. Uh, I think there is certainly a risk of the perception of that, and that is why, in the build-up to an election, which is why I think um, most of the main parties are still clear of any commitments on this. But um, when you look at the, um, the the costs fall hardest on um, those on the lowest income, and Food Foundation have done a lot of research to show how how difficult it is for people to be um, on low income to afford a healthy diet. Um, so I think I made the point earlier that um, when it comes to um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, I suppose looking at it a different way. Um, when you look at the costs to the economy, I suppose this is a, a, a different way of looking at it. Looking at the modelling that we've been putting forward on the different uh, models, um, talking about getting people back into work and being fit for work, um, this could be saving the economy or contributors going about eighty billion pounds. So um, I suppose there's different ways to look at the the costs. Is this? Yeah, I can see that the government doesn't want to necessarily add uh, to people's prices, but this is hitting the hardest, hitting the low income, hitting those groups the hardest. Um, so I think we need to look at this from some of those broader perspectives. Thanks, Ben. Okay, I think we've got about twenty minutes left. So I'm going to open it up to audience questions now. I'm going to take questions in groups of three. If you could please um, tell us your name, which organisation you're from, and if I could ask everybody to make them uh, questions rather than comments, just so I can make sure I can get to as many people as possible. Got one here. One here and one here. Thanks very much. Really interesting panel. Uh, I've got a question. Uh, I'm Anna Taylor from the Food Foundation. I've got a question for Daniel, which relates to Sophie's first point. So, Sophie, you said that one of the main problems is that obesity policy has been focused on the wrong thing to date. I'm interested, Daniel, in terms of focusing on individual actions, 
rather than the environments in which people are making decisions about what to eat. I'm interested, Daniel, to what extent you think um, that argument or that evidence is brought by your fellow uh, front bench members. I mean, what we see quite consistently is a pattern of whatever party new Department of Health ministers getting in post, starting from a position of this is an individual's responsibility and then quite rapidly going on a journey when they kind of realise, actually, this is not the problem, this is an environmental problem. I wonder to what extent Labour has already gone on that journey in terms of the front bench and whether you're ready to start from that position or if whether that's still a very live conversation in the front bench. Thanks. Thank you. Jota? Hi, I'm Jeanette Aquilina and I work for the British Poultry Council or the Trade Association for Poultry Meat Producers here in the UK um, and I represent an industry that produces around half the meat that the UK eats and is a core staple in people's healthy diets. So my question is, you know, if cost is one of the main barriers to people accessing healthy food, do the panel think that there's a role for government in addressing some of the social inequalities that are prohibiting people from accessing healthy food and also paying a fair price for British food as well? Thank you. Thank you. I need one here. Hi there, uh, Keir Gallagher from Cycling UK. Um, great to hear about all the talk of uh, into sort of government working. Um, I guess, yeah, the issue often is that and I think it's cross-government places like the Department for Transport, if they invest in active travel, they don't see the benefit to their budget. Um, so how can we make sure on that government level it's of, there's that economic case? Um, Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so we've got, has government, has um, Labour already moved away uh, from individual kind of responsibility? Uh, role of government in addressing inequalities and economic case for active travel? Daniel, I'm going to come to you first. Very good, and Anna, thank you for, for all the, the help and advice you give us in your organisation. Um, but I think, to some extent, um, I would hope that most Labour politicians, just by definition of being Labour, would be starting from a different position, because uh, I think there is a fundamental problem for the Conservatives in the sense that their view of the world absolutely stresses personal responsibility all the time, almost the exclusion of all else. I think they then go on a journey when they um, collide with the facts. Now, Rayburn starts on a different posi intellectual position in general. So in answer to your question, is there, is there a, a, a live discussion? Um, they are very lively, the discussions, I can assure you. <laughs> um, but it probably won't come as any surprise to you as, as observers of any government that are different views. Um, and I'm very clear about my views, um, and I'm trying to persuade others to come to the same point. But I think you're right to say that, to observe that it is interesting to see how often um, people, when they actually are confronted with the evidence, move, move, change their view. And that ought to be encouraging to everyone in this room, because the evidence is, is really, really clear. I think, I think the problem is the political context, exactly, as was said earlier. And I, I, there may be a sweet spot coming up, and that, that's, my, that's my hope when, when things can be done. Um, and on the, on the, uh, you've given me the, 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 the perfect excuse to do what I've been promising to do at every single uh, meeting I, 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 I address, which is to mention Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, <laughs> 
Um, some of you obviously haven't been in other meetings and you've heard this gag before. But, um, but you know, what, was, what he said last week about um, imported foods to different standards, let's be clear, you know, um, hormone treated beef and chlorine washed chicken, um, clearly people aren't you know, collapsing in droves in Australia and America. It's not a food safety issue, but these are very different standards and very different ways of producing food. And sh should we adopt the kind of suggestion that, that Rhys Mogg adopted, then it's the end of British, the British food system, essentially, because it can all be produced to lower standards elsewhere. So I think you make a very, very strong point, and there's a huge difference between Labour's position and what, what I mean, the thing I find staggering is it's not, it's not a some backbencher. This time last year, he, Jai Wardner and Truss, who I think probably share this view, were running the country. So it's no wonder we've had the damaging trade deals we've had. So a very different approach from Labour. And of, one thing I think we perhaps haven't touched on this morning is it's very much been as if the retailers are the sole, um, sole, have sole responsibility um, for this issue. Of course, an awful lot of it is eaten out of home. And I'm afraid some of that, and when one looks at where some of the lower standard products, safe to eat in this country, let's be clear, but lower standard, it's not necessarily coming through the retailers. And there's a danger sometimes in thinking that is the only part of the solution. We've got to look more widely, including at public procurement, and when you look at what we ask our school meals providers to provide for people um, at a staggeringly low cost, which has barely changed its 7p increase over the last few years, it's no wonder um, that that is a, a fraught area. So a whole range of things there. And on the final question about how you, I mean, this, I mean, how many times, I was a councillor years ago, how many times have we talked about pool budgets, shared budgets, trying to um, realise the benefits in, in, in one area and another? It keeps going back to the same point, and the, you know, the mission-led approach gives us, I hope, a way of doing that. But I'm under no illusion, breaking the departmentalised approach to, to the UK government is going to be really hard, because those people will, will defend um, their territory, whatever incoming ministers are going to be trying to do. But what an opportunity, an incoming government, a time of change, to actually do things differently. Thank you. Well, I wonder if you want to come next. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with the point that uh, it's not just about retailers, obviously. Um, you know, it is a whole sector, and it would be great to see a level playing field in terms of impact of a lot of regulations and, and everyone coming to the table. Um, to the question on uh, the cost of food, I mean, I already talked about our investments in price, and, and they have been significant. Um, there is no doubt that, of course, the affordability of healthy food is important, and we need to address that. I don't know that a single retailer can do that on their own and it does need to be looked at much more broadly. Um, but it's not just about price, but you also talked about fair pay. Um, and actually, as Sainsbury's, we did a lot of work to look at the increased costs for farmers, particularly in Britain, uh, around feed, fertilizer use, uh, heating, etc. And we made supplementary payments to, to those farmers uh, to help with that. We've also looked at longer-term contracts, and actually in poultry in particular, we have done so. Um, and we think that that's important because it allows um, that supplier to really invest for the longer term, particularly looking at more sustainable outcomes. So, you know, those sorts of initiatives are actually really important beyond pay and affordability per se. 
Um, some of you may have heard me talk about this a lot, so I apologize if this is the case, but we also do work with the most vulnerable communities, both through our community programs, but also we, we did an initiative where we targeted Healthy Start voucher customers with an additional £2 voucher that they could use week in, week out towards their fruit and veg shop. And we found that that increased the amount of uh, fruit and veg in their baskets by an average of 13 portions during that time. Um, so it's a really good example of the private sector stepping in to supplement safeguarding of funds for vulnerable communities. The challenge, though, is that it's actually very hard for most retailers to do that because identifying those customers isn't easy in the current data systems world. So it's a good example of where actually we could work together in the data space to help uh, deliver better outcomes for um, more vulnerable groups. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on um, Anna's point, which is uh, speed is really important here. So the danger that you have when you get into government is the scale of the problems, multiple, are so big that you have to prioritise. And if you don't do something on obesity quite quickly, you will quite quickly be submerged, particularly in the health space, by the NHS, which got 7.7 million people on a waiting list. You will rightly be asked, what are you doing about that? And your scrutiny on that is very, very high, which is why I say what you probably need is a day one, day 100 day plan for this agenda, which gets the structures and the evidence up and running really, really quickly. And I think what you're hearing around this conference is that there probably is quite a lot of work going on on that agenda. It's just not yet being made being made public. But speed is of the essence. As soon as you get into those vital departments, loads of other gremlins come out, loads of other problems appear that you're not aware of. And suddenly all your ideas about the things that you really, really want to do suddenly get parked for a load of agendas that you didn't even realize existed. So so part of the scrutiny and kind of um, constructive accountability is about that 100 days, what does that look like? It's manifesto, yes, but then execution that comes after it. I also really wanted to stress that you will not fix obesity policy just through food. And, you know, it is absolutely not just about food. It's, it's, you, have to, you have to look at this. As, this is why I, th I don't think we've made the progress that we've made. I think we have to look at this in a more structural and dynamic way. And the, the, the point about inequalities is a really, really important one. And the health mission is based around this reducing, and there is an existing government target around 2035, reducing healthy life expectancy, which is absolutely nowhere near being being hit. So yes, food is important, but it is not just about food. It is more structural and more dy dynamic. That's so just wanted to stress that. Thank you. Um, I suppose I wanted to come uh, to your points, uh, Angela, around possible uh, main barriers. And I think with the the uh, policies that we're proposing in terms of the fiscal measures, I think it's really important to, to sort of point out that what we're trying to, to, to drive is that reformulation of products and product portfolios uh, and shifting towards more real food. And also, I think with the, the money that would be raised, making sure that that is going towards making sure that people in the lowest income can eat well, whether that's through physical meals, whether that's through breakfast clubs, things like that. I mean, there's a whole range of different ways in which uh, Labour government could spend money. But I think to your point around um, British producers, we need to make sure that this is supporting British producers to. to um, whether that's through public procurement uh, and making sure it's supporting British producers, producing to the highest standards. Thank you. Sophie? 
I would say I totally agree with what's been said so far. And the only thing I would add is I think that this policy area, you know, we've talked about trying to break with the history of the past and kind of, um, but this space is also hugely exciting of kind of what is the future food system that we want to see and what policy can we do to guide us towards that. So it's not just about kind of um, shutting off choices, it's about actually expanding choices and creating more options. And I think that's uh, a really important space to bring out. And particularly if you're talking about, you know, department's budgets, that has totally been a barrier and it's great that there are kind of institutional machinery government things you can do around that but there's also kind of obesity as an intersectional issue has those intersectional benefits that you know from a treasury perspective which has also already talked really well about the kind of um economic benefits potentials from that but also from a different perspective from a sustainability perspective like there are so many kind of um intersectional benefits to be had from this policy these kind of policies as well thank you okay i'm going to take another round of questions one here one here and then one there Thanks very much, Manchester Gordon and the Council of Manchester. I think two quick please, please. First of all, um, can we do something really quite quickly about school meals and about ensuring that those school meals are actually healthy? Because I am really concerned when I see what we're here from my granddaughters, what they eat. It's ultra processed food, not, and that really bothers me. The second thing is um, a plea to involve not just cross departmental but also the regions. And what's that? Because we've got this massive inactivity crisis as well. That's not come up yet but it is very much part of the problem so we need to involve regions in how they make cities and areas easier for people to move around through active travel that's really important thanks thank you thank you thank you Jane Alford uh, the British Humanist Society we heard from Sophie that voluntary measures are, are not enough Darren you said on Sunday that you don't want to get drawn into culture war on meat however according to the uh, gospel of Kimberley, we do need a 30% reduction in meat consumption by 2030 so my question is given 60% of people are positive about eating less meat could giving the public the opportunity to choose more healthy whole food plant-based food in public sector in schools hospitals workplaces should it be part of the solution thank you and then we have one here Thank you, Julie Best from Turning Point. Um, it was really to Rich's point about the speed of having to move when you get into government. And I wonder if there's any uh, quick lessons to be learned by the response to the Dan Carroll Black Review on drug policy and the way that they have responded with a, what I think is a very effective cross-government cross, uh, departmental working approach to, to drugs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so we've got school meals um, involving regions uh, rather than just working across Whitehall, meat consumption and plant-based food and uh, lessons from the Black Review. I'm just going to work my way down the panel from uh, Ben to Lanani. Um, I suppose just to respond on school meals, and I know in the audience I've got a number of colleagues who are experts in school meals, so I'd, I'd recommend and challenge them up this, but I think you're completely right. We do need to make school meals more healthy, uh, and uh, my understanding is that the FSA has been doing some pilots on how to, to, to do that and how to monitor that, um, which is falling into the long grass a little bit, but it is definitely, um, it's definitely possible, and there definitely needs to be leadership to see that happen. 
as well as Norway, um, and in terms of their kind of involvement from regions, and, and also I should say nations. I think there's a lot of leadership in, in Wales and Scotland on these issues, and I think we need to make sure that that actually there isn't that postcolonial in terms of what people uh, and what children uh, receive when it comes to, to school food. Um, and one of the things that we've been looking to sustain is advocating for is not only extension of um, free school meals, so that, that those who most needy are eligible, but to have that um, extension to universal provision, which I know has been supported by various people in the Labour Party. Not everyone yet. Um, and I'm going to put around um, the 30% reduction meet by 2030 and, and what was in the national food strategy. I think there is more that the public sector can do. Um, so we run a, a campaign called Food for the Planet, which is working with different local authorities around the country, which is looking at how they can um, adopt more climate-friendly food policies. The public sector procurement being one of those. Um, so I definitely recommend checking that out in terms of what, what local authority leadership there is on this. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see what um, a Labour government could be uh, adopting with that. Daniel. Uh, first of all, I'm very sorry I'm going literally two minutes, so can I use the opportunity to thank you for what I think it's been a, a fantastic discussion on the three questions uh, working with. I'm, I'm not really aware of the Dame Carol Black uh, point, so I'm very happy to go and, and look at that, but if that's a good example, then I'm very happy to look at good examples. On uh, uh, whether people should eat meat or not, I think that's going to have to fundamentally remain a choice for people, but I think that's the key, that there is choice available, and I don't think I, I, I very much agree with I never thought I'd find myself saying I agree with John Gummer, but I actually found myself agreeing with Lord Eden a lot in recent years. And his point is that um, we can certainly see a future where people will be eating, eating less but better. And I think my view is that if farmers are paid a fair price for that product, they will be absolutely fine with that. And that seems to me to be a good solution. And on school meals, I've already hinted at that. I mean, this is. Um, in a, a really difficult area because quite clearly Henry made, it, in my view, a range of serious points, a big spending commitment, and not something I'm afraid from DEFRA, despite all our cross-party discussion, uh, cross-departmental discussion, um, that, that I can uh, make, uh, I can opine on, but um, we absolutely see the value, and I, I just don't see, as I said earlier, how um, how we can expect uh, our school meal providers uh, to, to operate in such a constrained way, and uh, I think it's ongoing discussion around around the standards which we need to drive up but well, we've got to be honest about that so I visit schools actually every Friday and I'm, I look at some of the privatised school meal providers and um, I, I'm, I'm not always uh, hugely impressed and then um, finally on the point about active travel absolutely we should be doing everything we can times to encourage it everywhere but as I said around the meat issue I'm not going to play the Tories culture war issues I just intend to win it <laughs> <laughs> Daniel thank you so much for taking part Um, so yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that's been said on free school meals. I think great things are happening in this space. You know, this, um, Henry Dunley has a Chefs for Schools program that um, you've seen really successful things coming out of. And I think particularly when you look at that individual school level, there are some really amazing examples of innovation in that space. Um, I think uh, as part of our research, we looked at Barford Primary School where they've um, introduced not only kind of healthy um, free school meals, um, but also alongside that an education program explaining um, why that's happened and kind of explaining the sort of wider food system but also the sustainability issues at play here so i think uh, programs like that are really brilliant um on involving the regions absolutely agree that that um is really important and i think 
one thing that came up in our research is that you know we met some really kind of passionate directors of public health at local authorities who really wanted to do more um, and they were doing their absolute best but they were really limited by their funding and um, for many of them particularly getting into the food space was difficult but, uh, most of their resources were focused on the um, physical activity side of things when if we're talking about diet related health the food is obviously the um, important aspect there and I think whilst um, so whilst you know many of the policies we're talking about would be rolled out on a national scale I think you know clearly there's a lot of region and earth quality here there's some real local expertise and what can work locally and I think there's absolutely a role for regional government um, on the vegetarian issue absolutely agreed like just having that choice and those options available it's not about shutting down options but it's about expanding them um, and then finally on the um, I've heard really good things about the um, Dan Carlack's uh, drug review as well um, and uh, as a catalyst for cross-departmental reform I think the one thing that's come up to me in conversations I've had is it's not just about ministerial collaboration but there's been really um, calibration across um, really senior civil servants on this as well and kind of bringing that um, cross-departmental join up um, at the official level as well has been really powerful which is yeah not too much to add because a lot of it's been covered but local government absolutely it's the front door and um, doing there's some amazing innovation going on in terms of some of these agendas um so absolutely i think when we talk on panels like this is often we focus on the national mechanics but it's it's getting those local partners in and actually i think the chief medical officer has done some amazing work at building those local government relationships through covid that actually can now be repurposed for some of these agendas so i think there's some really good stuff going on there i don't really have a huge amount to add on school meals but i think there's another related point which is hospital food um, we've got obviously a system which is under huge amounts of pressure. The food that most people are eating in hospital is not a particularly high quality. It affects their ability to get out of hospital quickly. Recovery times are really poor. Bounce, people bouncing back and forth through the system. So again, an agenda there. The government did do a review with Prudence on this, but progress has probably been a little bit mixed. People may be closer to it than me. On the Carol Black stuff, I think the, the reason why that works is Carol Black. <laughs> So she is a force of nature. She's been around government for a long, long time. She knows how it works. I think the learning there is, again, if if the health mission is going to work, who is going to be your sort of central advocate, who is going to be bringing the right people together, who's credible, who can make it work. So Carol has done that, but, and she, but she gets around the departments and she gets around government in the right way. So that's, that's a key learning, as well as the kind of mechanics of the civil servant working. She's a fantastic advocate. So yeah, I would say that's, that's a key learning there. Um, I don't think there's much more I can add other than uh, just to the point about vegetarian diets. Um, look, I think firstly we're working a lot with our, our livestock farmers to help encourage them to deliver more sustainable meat. Um, and I think that has to work in partnership. But we also want to see customers eat a basket that's more in line with the Eat Well Guy, so more plant-rich choices. Um, we've done a lot in the innovation space with you know products like Love Your Veg, Love Your Meat and Veg. Sadly, that didn't work very well. It's a, a blended product. wasn't so popular, maybe ahead of its time. Um, we've also done campaigns where we've uh, really encouraged people to add you know beans and lentils to typical meat-based dishes. Just makes the meal go further, you know, and makes it more nutritious. Um, it's been received with mixed reception, shall we say, and, you know, we're, definitely we're giving up, um, but we will keep continuing to encourage um, that shift towards the Eat Well Guide in terms of the basket of foods that customers are taking home. Thank you. Okay, we're at half past, so Sally, I'm going to have to draw this event to a close now. Um, thank you so much uh, to the organisations that make this event possible, BBC Health Alliance, the Food Foundation and Sustain. Thank you to all our panellists um, and thank you to you guys, the audience, um, for staying with us for an hour and asking excellent questions. Thanks. Thank